Our reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, first three verses of chapter 61 of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. We have been studying the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is uh, not the thing we normally call the Lord's Prayer, (laughs) but the Lord's Prayer is not a prayer actually prayed by the Lord, but his instructions to us about how to pray, our Father who art in heaven, etc. But this is what Jesus prayed for us. What a remarkable thing it is that the Son of God made flesh prays. What an amazing thing. The Son of God prays. He is eternal God. His word is law. If he says it, it is true. And if it wasn't true before he said it, when he says it, it will become true. That's how he made the universe. He simply spoke. He simply commanded things to be. And yet, that eternal God prays to eternal God, the Father. What an amazing thing. And if you are one of his, he prays for you, which is even more amazing. Now, if the Son of God incarnate the Lord Jesus Christ prays, Is there anything he doesn't know? No. Is there anything he does not possess the resources to do? No. You know, sometimes we might notice that God already knew what you were going to pray before you prayed it. And he already knew before you prayed how he would respond to your prayer. 
And sometimes we get our little heads in a tizzy over this, and we say to ourselves, well, what then is the point of praying? We might ask that about the Lord Jesus. What was the point? The Father would do what he was going to do. Jesus has all the power he needs, all the authority. What's the point of the conversation? I just wanted to stop there for a second and let you work on that. Here's what I've come to believe. The conversation is the point. The point of all things is the eternal, loving, glorious fellowship of the triune God poured out into his creation. The conversation is the point. There's an eternal conversation. The scripture says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. There's an eternal discussion of us in God. You cannot get your brain around that. It is so amazing, so fantastic. And his, the whole thing is that trinity, that triune God is one being in relation in three persons, having a fellowship, having joy in each other, praising and glorifying the greatness of one another for all eternity, ever have been, ever will be. And in the creation, he has created humanity for the purpose of joining that eternal, joyful, glorious conversation. So when you pray, you probably pray about something. I, you know, here's my problem. I have to have some pain or suffering or uh, discouragement or frustration or uh, something's got to be going wrong in order to get me to pray. And I say, oh, Lord, help me, because I run out of other places to look. What an idiot. What an idiot. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Whatever else you might be doing, if you're not praying, you are foolish. If you can pray and you don't, you are foolish, foolish beyond compare. Like, we could call you insane if you ever stop praying. <laughs> oh, I just called everyone in here insane, I think, <laughs> myself included. This is the insanity of our sin. 
This is the insanity of our departure from the living God who is in himself life. And apart from him, we are dead. When we depart from him, we die. Now, in Christ, it is possible again to live in this eternal, joyful, glorious fellowship with the living God. How do we ever do anything else? Jesus says, this is the first commandment, that you love the Lord your God. That's the most important thing you can do. Well, now that you know the most important thing you can do, why would you ever do anything else? Why would you stop doing the most important thing to do something that's not quite as important as that? Prayer is the thing itself. You can, because you are in Christ, united to Christ, born of the Spirit, possessing the Spirit of the living God, you can converse with God about anything at any time. Wow. I got a little distracted by all that. Why pray? <laughs> what a dumb question. What a stupid question. It reminds me of that uh, guy when they, he, he, you know, he was the first guy to climb Mount Everest. Somebody said, why, why are you climbing Mount Everest? He said, because it's there. <laughs> there was an irresistible attraction to the task. And what a dumb task. I mean, really. I mean, why climb Mount Everest is actually a really good question. But why talk to the living God, the source and being of all things? Because you can. Why would you do something else? Well, Jesus prayed because Jesus lives the perfectly righteous human life in every respect at all times. Jesus the, is the eternal Son of God made flesh, become one of us. What? How's that possible? I don't know, but that is possible. We're created in the image of God to bear the image of God, to live in the likeness of God, fellowship with God, and to bear his image, fellowship with the rest of the others, to show who he is by who we are. That's what we're made for, and that's what Jesus actually does. Perfect righteousness at all times, his whole life. You can't even imagine what that would be like. I doubt if you've gone 10 seconds in anything we could call actual righteousness. But he did. Well, and Jesus prays. What did he pray for? Well, let's go back. We're going to review now. The first thing he prayed for was the glorification of the Son in his atoning sacrifice, delivering eternal life to you and me he is glorified when he is lifted up on the 
cross of execution. And so the most glorious act in all of history was also all of history's greatest humiliation. No one has been lower ever than he was, and at the same time, higher. Our God is a God of these great ironies. And it is in the humiliation that's more than humbleness. Humiliation of Christ that he is exalted, lifted up, glorified. And so he prays, this is the night before he would go to the cross. The time has come, he says, glorify your son that he may give eternal life. And then he tells us what eternal life is, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. If you don't know God, you are dead. If you know God, you have eternal life. And then the second request is glorify me with the glory I had with you before the creation of the world. So his second request is the glorification of the Son in his reunion with the Father. He's coming back to the more immediate presence, maybe we'd say, of the Father. Do you see how the fellowship of the triune God is primary over everything? The rejoicing, the mutual rejoicing of Father, Son, and Spirit that is, in fact, eternal from eternity past to eternity future. It says, glorify me. Bring me back to that place. And so he speaks of his resurrection, his ascension, his coronation, his now, his present-day intercession for his people, seated at the right hand of Almighty God, the Father. The third request was that the Father would keep them, the disciples. Keep. And so he, he looks like he's praying for us in those glorification texts. I mean, like praying for himself, I'm sorry. He looks like he's praying for himself when he says glorify the Son Glorify me. But you need that. If the Son is not glorified by being lifted up on the cross, we are dead in our sins. If he doesn't ascend, if he isn't seated at the right hand, if he doesn't, as Hebrews says, ever live to make intercession for you, you're lost. And so the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is for you and your benefit as well as his. As I said, the whole point, the whole point, and when I say the whole point, I mean the whole point of everything at all times 
is the fellowship of the living God, the eternal relation, Father, Son, and Spirit, joy and glory for all time, extended into what he creates, especially in relation to humanity, is the point of all points at all times. There isn't any other cause for anything to exist. So he says, keep them. Keep them. Oh, I hope we hear <laughs> the, as, as I heard someone say recently, the, the double grip. And really, it's a triple grip. But Jesus said, my, I, no one can snatch you from my hand. And then he said, my father's greater than all. No one can snatch you from his hand. So around the hand of the Son of God is the hand of the Father God. And, by the way, he didn't mention in that text, all of this is accomplished by the ministry of the Spirit of God in you. You cannot get over this, please. Do not let yourself get used to this. It is spectacular beyond belief. God has kept you and is keeping you. The Father does not say no to the Son's prayer request. Keep them. Watch over them, protect them, shepherd them, bring them in. This is the, well, let's call it the sheepfold where we are kept. The sheepfold where we are kept is the joyful, glorious, eternal fellowship of the triune God. That's the pen where you live, kept by the Father shepherded by the good shepherd whose voice you hear and follow because he actually has come to dwell in you in the person of the Spirit. <laughs> Can this be real? It is too good. So he says, glorify your Son Glorify me with the glory I had with you before. Keep them. And then we came to this prayer request. Sanctify them. Set them apart. Holyfy them. Sanctify them where? In the truth. Your word is truth. Now, it's my complete conviction that when Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth, he may as well have said, sanctify them in me, your word. Because in the book of John, the truth right here in this speech earlier in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's identified in the very first chapter as the Word, and that's repeated. The Logos of God is incarnate in the man Jesus. 
So where are you sanctified in Christ? And this Paul develops in the book of Romans in the whole, well, in the rest of the New Testament, in the whole concept of our union with Christ. And Jesus is going to speak about that for the rest of this chapter, our oneness, our oneness with God in Christ and with each other. So he says, set them apart. And last time we talked about what that meant. It means to be claimed as God's exclusive possession for his particular designated purpose and task. You remember I talked about my toothbrush, which I still don't have in my pocket to whip out like this and show you a toothbrush. My toothbrush is a holy object. It's been set apart from all the other toothbrushes. It is for me and me only. No one else can use my toothbrush. It might be a perfectly good toothbrush. You could probably brush your teeth with it effectively. And when I said that, all of us went like this. Uh, not if we don't boil it for a couple of days first so that it's no longer your toothbrush. But my toothbrush is for me and me only, and it's only for brushing my teeth. I don't use it to clean my shoes. And if I did, it's no longer my toothbrush. It's lost its holiness. Well, we are set apart from the world unto God. We are his possession. We belong to him and him alone. And by the way, that includes you and me. I don't, I don't own myself. And you do not own yourself. You've been set apart unto God. And he has a specific purpose for that sanctification, for that consecration is another word we would use for it. So what is that purpose? What is that purpose? Well, Jesus says it right here in the text. John 17, if you haven't turned there already, you could do that now. John 17... Yeah, I've got to find it here. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. There's your purpose and task. Sent. Sent into the world. Now, this... Uh, <clears throat> Well, Jesus does this thing, and he does it a lot in this prayer, right? Where he says, like you and me, like you and me is me and them. Or like you and me is us and them. Or like you and me is us and them, is them with each other. He does this a lot. So how is it? It's not, he doesn't just say, I've sent them into the world. He doesn't say, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I've sent them into the world. 
He didn't say that. He said, like you sent me, I sent them. And this made me think, well, let's go study how in the book of John especially, Jesus was set apart and sent. Because, you know, in John chapter 10, if you go to John 10, I'm going to read verses 35 to 38. Okay, I'm going to read verse 34 too. Jesus answered them. This is when the Pharisees accused him of blasphemy because he claimed to be the son of God. Of course, that's only blasphemy if it's not true. But in any case, they claimed, they said that, and Jesus said, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent? The father sanctified and sent into the world. You're blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? If I don't do the works of my father, don't believe me. But if I do them, though you don't believe me, believe the works. So that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. So how is Jesus sanctified and sent well, or for what purpose was he sent? He was sent to declare himself to be the son of God, clearly. To do the works of the father. To show the oneness of God and Christ. For a specific purpose that they would know. Well, he uses three words. Know, understand, and believe. So Jesus is sent to declare Jesus to be the Son of God, to do the works of the Father, to demonstrate that he is one with God, the Son of God, and all of that so that people would come to know, understand, and trust in him as the Son of God. That's John 10. Well, we're going to go back a little further to John 8. John 8, 42. Now, this is in the section where Jesus is, has declared himself to be the light of the world. Look, if someone declares himself to be the light of the world, he's either the light of the world or he is not anyone anyone should listen to I mean that is the brag of brags I'm the light of the world well if you're not the light of the world and you say that you are what are you nuts or bad one or the other so anyway they have this argument he has this argument because he's claiming to be the son of God again like we said before, and Jesus is responding to these guys. They say, we're Abraham's sons. <laughs> and Jesus says, if you were Abraham's sons, you'd recognize me. So clearly you're not. 
He says, if God were your father, so after he dispels the Abraham son thing, they say, we only have one father, God. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. Because whose father is God first of all? Jesus. So he says, look, if God were your father, you and I would be brothers, you'd love me. You'd recognize me. He says, I proceeded forth and have come from God. I didn't even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. The whole idea of Jesus being sent by the Father is a constant theme in the book of John. He says, why do you not understand what I'm saying? Because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father, the devil. Later he says, but because I speak the truth, you don't believe me. Here's the thing about the human race in the world. We're not about the truth. We have all bought the big lie that we can belong to ourselves, be our own man. And I, I, can, I can use God if God is useful to me. I can have as much religion as I find to be beneficial for me. Why would God put up with that sort of nonsense? Well, he doesn't. But we believed it. He says, because I speak the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin if I speak truth? Why don't you believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you don't hear them because you're not of God. So if we are, as Jesus described in chapter 17, people who have received his word, have kept his word, we recognize the voice of our Savior, our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus. We follow him. We are secure in his grip. He keeps us and he has set us apart to be sent in the way Jesus has been sent. And Jesus has been sent to speak the words of God. Why are you still here? Why does Jesus say, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the world, in the world? Well, here's a really good way to keep you safe from the world, take you out of it. Why doesn't he do that? Because he is setting you apart to be sent. Sent for what? To speak the words of God. Life-giving good news of the opportunity for joyful fellowship with the creator of all. The great, good, glorious, triune God. I'm getting ahead of myself. To speak the words of God. In chapter 3, we're going back a little farther in the book. Chapter 3, a famous chapter, right? John 3, verse 34. We usually stop reading before we get to this point. But, sorry, I shouldn't say that. Uh, Jesus, or John says, 
For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. Oh my goodness, do you hear the Trinity in that verse? (laughs) If you didn't, read it again. Jesus walks, speaking the words of the Father, doing the works of the Father with perfect consistency at all times. How is that done? The man Jesus always knows exactly what the Father's saying so that he can say that, always knows exactly what the, what the Father's doing so he can do that. How? Because he gives the Spirit without measure. The Spirit of the living God absolutely perfectly indwelled Jesus at all times. The Spirit is that communion between the human incarnate Son of God and his Father in heaven. All three persons of the Trinity operate in the life of Christ so that he speaks the words of God. (laughs) It's amazing. He whom God has sent speaks the words of God for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, I just want to stop here for a second and remember what eternal life is. If you believe in the Son, you know the Father. That's eternal life. Eternal life is knowing you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. That's eternal life. Everything else is dead. But he does not obey the Son. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, the wrath of God was already on him. And if he doesn't receive the Son, he stays dead. He wasn't alive and now threatened with death. This is very important. Before you recognize Jesus, you are not alive and going to die and go to hell. You are already dead and going to hell. It's it's like this. There's this illustration. Sometimes we think of salvation as Jesus. We're, We're in the middle of the ocean drowning and Jesus comes along in his good boat and lifts us out of the ocean into the boat. And so he saves us. That's not how it is. That's not how it is. We were not in the ocean drowning, trying to swim for the shore. We were at the bottom of the ocean, drowned. The scripture says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and he brought us to life. If you don't know God, you're dead already. And it's only because Jesus introduces you to God and reconciles you to God by paying the penalty for your sin so that you can be forgiven and come into the very throne of God, now you're alive if you know God. Well, that's what he says here in John chapter 3. Jesus is sent to speak the words of God and in that way to deliver eternal life to those who 
Receive him, receive those words. In chapter 3, verse 16. Famous verse, yes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God has not sent, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has already been judged because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Jesus is sent to the world to speak the words of God, which are the words of eternal life in union with him. And then we go all the way back to chapter 1, and I'm going to have to rush it a little here. Chapter 1, verse 9 through 18 Jesus comes into the world to enlighten every man. The light of Christ has been shown in the world. It is shining on everyone, every man. He came into the world in chapter 1 to give the right of adoption by God to those who receive him. So, He's presented as coming into the world, the light of the world shining on every man and men love darkness rather than light. And it's like those cockroaches when you turn the light switch on and they all run for the dark corner. And when Jesus came into the world, people received him, but in general they did not. They ran for the dark corners. They prefer the darkness to the light. They believe the lie. And so they don't believe the truth. The word of God is declared to them and they deny it. But some believe. And to those he gives the right to be called the children of God. He came to display the glory of the Father. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So he says to Philip, you've seen me, you've seen him. He displays the glory of God. He reveals, he's come to, the text says in chapter one, he's full of grace and truth. Grace and truth are united in the person of Jesus. You won't see that anywhere else. Grace and truth together. He personifies grace and truth in a single person. He came to reveal the Father. He he says in John, no one's ever seen God. Not one person has ever seen God, the Father, except in the Son. Now that tells me when Moses saw saw God, he was dealing with the Son of God. 
But that's just a kind of esoteric theological point. But the, the, no one's ever seen God the Father except the Son, and the Son reveals the Father. So when Philip says, show us the Father, Jesus says, I am showing you the Father. That's what I do. So in Jesus, God became knowable. And known. <laughs> he didn't just become knowable. He became known to those who saw him, saw in the face of Jesus Christ, as Paul writes in Corinthians, saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. He's knowable and known, and those who know him have what? Eternal life. Hmm. Those who know him, in knowing him, have eternal life. Knowing him is eternal life. So I'm going to summarize. The question was, what is the service of the Son as he is sent by the Father? Because Jesus said, as you sent me, I send them. <laughs> do you realize he's saying that what I came to do, he sent you to do? What was it? Well, here's a summary. The revelation of God in Jesus Christ and the announcement of reconciliation with God. Wow, that's a giant word, reconciliation. That means restoration of fellowship where their fellowship had been broken. Now we, our fellowship is restored with God in Jesus. Those two things, speaking the words of God. That means the revelation of God in Jesus. So we are the people who are supposed to be the revel. Wait, he's the revelation. And we, according to scripture, are the body of Christ. How do I see you? Well, you showed up here. I, I look at your body and you look at mine and we're present with each other because we're embodied. That's the nature of humanity. That's the nature of the Son of God. He embodies God. And so when we are called the body of Christ, we are called to be the presence of Jesus Christ. Not me, us. We are the presence of Christ and in being the presence of, because we're in union with Christ and we walk with Christ and we have fellowship with God in Christ, we present Christ as the revelation of God in the world. And of course, we declare these things to be true from the word of God. Oh, and by the way, we're the ones announcing reconciliation with God. That's what, that's what Paul says. He says, you know, Everything's changed. This is in, uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but it might be 2 Corinthians chapter. He says, everything's changed. Everything's new now that we're a new creation in Christ, created in Christ Jesus. 
He says, I don't look at anyone the same way I used to look at them. But God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, the announcement of reconciliation, of restored fellowship with God. All that is is another way of saying eternal life. So why are you still here? Why does Jesus say, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe in the world? It's for this. Sanctify them. Send, I'm sending them like you sent me. If the Lord takes the church out of the world, the testimony of Christ goes missing. That will happen one day. You know what they call that day? The terrible day of the Lord. The outpouring of his wrath in the world. You're here, and it really matters to testify to the truth of God, to the glory of God in Christ, to the gospel, the good news of our salvation in Christ. Now, there's another question here, which I'm going to save. How does Jesus make our sanctification possible? His answer, the answer to that question is, I sanctify myself. And we're going to have to talk about that next time because we're out of time. But I do want to get to this. Who's included says, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, these guys in the room, but everyone who believes in me through their word. This prayer is for the church for all time. This prayer is for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Set apart. Set apart. I don't think you realize the height of your calling in your union with Christ. What an important person you have become in Christ because you now have the words of eternal life. You remember when Jesus said to the disciples, so everyone's leaving, guys. Are you leaving too? You remember what Peter said in response to that question? To go where? That was his answer. Says, so you guys going to leave me too? Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. As the Father sent the Son, the Son sent you. You have the words of eternal life. How's anyone going to hear it? You have it. You have it. What a high thing. You know, we waste a lot of our time because <laughs> we stop praying and we stop showing. We stop showing who we are in Christ. And we're missing a glorious opportunity. I really got to stop now. Let me pray. Father, thank you.
for this great love that you've shown to us. It, it's really beyond my grasp, Father. I'm so thankful that you have a hold of me. You can't let me go. So I'm safe and kept in Christ. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us all to see the great opportunities you give us to be the body of Christ, to share the words of eternal life with each other and with the world around us so that we can see who else might come. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.